Welcome to the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast, where we dive into the climate change crisis and discuss how technology and innovations can help save our planet. I'm your host, Cody Sims. Join us as we talk with sustainability experts, investors, and founders about the issues we're collectively facing today due to climate change and how entrepreneurship can help. In today's episode, I talk with Justin Field of the National Venture Capital Association. We will discuss how his organization is opening up the dialogue between climate tech startups and government, as well as federal programs now offering new funding opportunities. With the increasing interest in climate tech and investing, there's so much happening in this space, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation with Justin. Justin, I'm so glad to have you with us today. Could you introduce yourself, introduce your background, and then tell us a bit about your role with the NBCA? Sure. And thanks so much for having me on. Really appreciate the opportunity, Cody. Always great to connect and chat and thought this would be a great opportunity. So I'm Justin Field. I'm with National Venture Capital Association. We're a trade association that represents venture capital partnerships across the country, including those that have a focus in climate sustainability. I've been here for almost seven years now. And before that, I spent my first 12 years of my career on Capitol Hill. So I've been in Washington for a fair amount of time now. A lot longer than I thought it was going to be, truth be told. But I think that's a story a lot of people tell about Washington. Same story a lot of us say about tech. So, hey, you know. <laughs> Fair point. Yeah, started in the House Democratic Leadership Office, worked for a senator from New Jersey, Senator Bob Menendez, and did his tax work on the Finance Committee. He's actually the individual that really got me excited about the power of technology. He sees a lot from the healthcare space, but kind of really pushed me to focus in on this area, which is why I became so interested in this space and, and ended up at NBCA seven years ago now. Maybe just for everyone's benefit, if you could unpack a bit more about what the NBCA is, how it works, what the organization does as a whole, and also just thinking about who's likely listening, what should startups know about the NBCA and what should any VCs who aren't currently involved with the NBCA, what should they know about it? So NBCA is a trade association that represents the industry, and almost every industry has some sort of trade association out there. These things are about as old as governance itself. Um, And there's a number of different things that the NBCA does. One of the biggest things we do is policy. So we interface between the industry, more broadly the startup ecosystem, and government, be that the legislature, be that regulators, et cetera. And we try to present as much of a unified voice to the government so they can understand how this stuff works when they're writing different policies and laws. We also have a number of other features. You know, we have convening power that we use to try to bring subsets of the industry together. We have events, we have education and learning, and we have a a sister foundation, Venture4, that does a lot of great work on education, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and looking at the history of the venture industry and trying to memorialize that. Your question on what should startups know about NBCA and what should VCs know, I, I think, is very good. One thing we would love to imp- impress upon them is we actually, most of our policy issues are startup focused. You know, Cody, if you think about all the work that we've done interfacing with policymakers over the last year, most of those climate issues are startup focused, if not all of them. And so we spend a great deal of time on that. So from a startup perspective, I would say get to know your VCs who are members and get the information flow that we're getting them. Because one of the challenges that startups have is that they don't often have other trade associations they can belong to. They're expensive. They're generally focused on larger companies, et cetera. So a lot of the stuff that's happening in Washington, they're not getting an insight into because they don't have that same flow. And we do a lot of that. So we can be that that helpful. I, I remember you know, the Paycheck Protection Program, I think, is a good example of what we can do for startups, getting that information out there, trying to impact the process to make sure this unique business model is known and trying to bring really bring both these sides together. And for the VCs, what I would say is, 
if you're not a member, join. And we hear a lot from folks being like, hey, listen, like, you know, I get what you all do. That's great. But like, I'm really focused on my companies. And what I would say to that is we are facing a really challenging moment in this country's history. And there's certainly been a renewed focus on government activism, both for better or for worse, depending on the policy in terms of how we want to address these long term challenges, which climate is a significant one, but not the only one. And so Washington is going to be a much more important place, I think, over the next five to 10 years than it has been in most of our professional careers. And so even if not for you as a VC, join it so you can get that information and provide your portfolio companies with a link to what's going on, because there's going to be a lot moving around here. That's great. I've certainly enjoyed the time I've had being able to participate through our seat at Techstars with you all. And, you know, you and I have gotten to know each other through the NBCA Climate and Sustainability Working Group. You know, and I can attest you've done an amazing job connecting those of us in the the working group with federal policymakers, letting us hear what's going on in policies that are currently in development on Capitol Hill or that are through the legislative process and moving into different departments and whatnot. It really gives us a voice in that legislative process where we can provide feedback, we can provide info from our portfolio companies or from sort of the purview where we sit. I'm curious if there's anything particularly unique about the work you do in the climate and sustainability space relative to other policy environments that maybe matter to startups. Sure. And first off, let me also say... Our group is only successful as participants. And so everything you've done to be a leader in this space, to take your time to talk to policymakers, provide your thought leadership, those are all things that we need. To take a step back, as a trade association, we work best when we are the interlocutor between government and industry. And so these are two very separate institutions with their own sets of rules, their own understandings of the world. And that's particularly true when you're thinking about startups, where there's just not a lot of interaction between them. Large incumbent industries have way more resources and way more reach for these folks for government to kind of understand. And so what we have to do is take these two disparate institutions and find ways for them to talk together, interpret what's going on on each side, interpret what the goals and objectives of each side are, and try to find common ground and some base level understanding. And we can't do that without the work that you do. So What we always need is participation and thought leadership from our members. And that's consistent, right? Whether we're talking about working with our subset of biotechnology members, fintech, cryptocurrency, medical device, cybersecurity, hardware, you know, any one of these different subsets that we try to help out or try to support in different debates within government, that remains the same. I guess the one special thing I would say is more of a timing thing, right? Just because we are staring at this moment in time on climate, so we're clearly spending a lot of time trying to make sure that we can impact this process as much as possible to ensure that government really does understand how to harness the innovative power of startups to bring to bear on this massive challenge. That's great. Super important work, which is, again, much appreciated. And I'm curious how you've seen the policy landscape change in the U.S., pretty much fully focused on the U.S., um, how you've seen the policy landscape change in the U.S. over the last decade. You mentioned earlier that you feel like government may have a bigger role to play over the next five, 10 years than it has sort of in our professional lifetimes to date. And any unpacking you can do around that, particularly, again, as it relates to climate innovation. So maybe I'll try to do a 30,000 foot one and then come straight down to climate from there. You know, 30,000 foot view is I think what we're undergoing right now is a transition from the sort of Washington consensus of lower tax, less regulation. Let's kind of keep everything together. It's working well to a much more activist dynamic. And I think that's happening in both parties, right? The party limited government 
is now much more the party of activist government under President when it was under President Trump. Obviously, the Democrats have, have always been a little more activist in government, but their interests have, have grown more substantial as well. Larger taxes, larger spending programs, larger goals. And so how that plays out the climate is I do think that there is an increased willingness to take more robust steps to address the climate crisis than there have been before. We talked about in the past decade, I think in climate, that's a really good indicator because a decade ago, was when we really saw the collapse of bad policy lead to the collapse of a lot of climate companies. Some could have survived. They let the direct pay mechanism for the tax credits fall off. They tightened up all the eligibility standards, their loan guarantee program, RPE after Solyndra. And they kind of did all the things that were, in some ways, the worst decisions, right? They swung away from risk. And that led to some real challenges and a drop in venture capital investment and sort of a real desert in the space for a few years, we are now back, right? And so in climate, you saw $12.7 billion of venture capital be invested across a broad range of technologies in 2020. Already the first half of 2021, you see $9.9 billion. So we're on pace to even smash that record from last year, which I think is really important. And I tend to think from the policy standpoint, I really do think that people are beginning to see the climate crisis. And coming back to that broader metric, I think they are willing to go more bold than they have been. And that includes the moderates as well. That's great. And, you know, you hit on this a minute ago, just a bit. But are there any key lessons that you think can be gleaned from that clean tech 1.0 era of the mid 2000s? And in particular, how do you see those lessons, assuming there are some, you already hinted on some that you think can be applied to today's round of climate legislation? Yeah, sure. Maybe I'll take that from the policymaker's perspective then from ours. From the policymaker's perspective, I think the number one lesson they gleaned from the 2009-2010 experience was we need to go bigger. We need bigger, better, et cetera, et cetera. What I see is, yes, you got to go bigger. You got to be consistent and you got to be smarter. Because they still had resources and loan guarantee programs. You know, they, they've been extending 45Q for a decade with a minimum scale requirement of 25,000 tons, meaning most startups can never access it. That's not a size of the package issue. That's a design flaw. And so what I would say to them and what I have been saying to them is, yes, go bigger, but you got to go smarter, too, because just throwing money at it through the existing processes might not get you the success that you're hoping to get to. Yeah, that's great. You know, you mentioned 45Q. I'm curious what federal programs in the U.S. currently do the most to provide support for climate innovation. So maybe let's consider this our 101 session just on introducing entrepreneurs and other listeners to the federal programs that they should be aware of. So what's the list of things that every climate tech founder should know about and which departments do they come from? And in particular, are there any major changes that NBCA is advocating for with any of these? So I would maybe start on my soapbox and say I, I tend to think the actual best policies that the U.S. has done on climate are accidental, are more of the policies just to incent innovation. So we, we've had a good research system. We've had a relatively successful tax system, et cetera. These things that, that have led us to be innovative leaders in a lot of other spaces as well, I think is enduring to our benefit in climate. The fact that we are probably still the most innovative economy in the world, I think, has really been helpful here. Specific to climate, I'm hoping that we see more come up. The existing programs, you got to talk to RPE. I think those guys are good. And, and we've heard from them several times, right? Like, we want to see more of you. We want to see you in the door. And I, I think a lot of what happens is because government is complex and slow moving and difficult to deal with, you get this sort of space in between startups who have to move fast. They have these other issues. They don't have a lot of legal counsel and time to deal with the regulatory processes. 
And then you have other entities that have cropped up, be they what are called cyber mills or government contractors or other folks who found ways because they're patient. They're not actually trying to build a company. They found ways to actually get those resources for things that aren't actually building real companies. So the first thing I would say is introduce yourselves to the RPE folks. So that's one of the better programs. DOD has a good SBAR program. So if there's a Department of Defense connection as well, they've done a lot of good work trying to clean up their SBIR program to make it actually kind of look more technology commercialization. Those are two that I think kind of jump out. I think you're going to see a more robust loan guarantee program. The other thing I would say is for companies that are getting to the scale-up phase where they're saying, okay, where am I going to do production? Where am I going to do my facilities? We've heard multiple times of the administration Come talk to us over at Department of Energy. We'll look across government agencies for you. If you're looking to locate manufacturing or, or production facilities and you're thinking between the U.S. and somewhere else, we will try to give you a concierge service to get those jobs in, keep those jobs in the U.S. And particularly if we can help them go to areas of the country that haven't seen as much benefit from the technological innovation we've seen in the last decade, we want to help you get there. That seems like a fairly new development in government generally, as it pertains to at least leaning into the startup side of things. Yeah, 100%. You know, I'm going to kind of give a caveat on this next section that the policy environment is changing every day right now. But let's get a bit short term focused and talk about some of what's actually being contemplated on the Hill right now, knowing that Congress is coming back in session this month and a lot of this stuff's actually going to get voted on in fairly near term. But from the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, the Endless Frontier Act, the Budget Reconciliation Package that has a ton of climate-related items in it, the Growing Climate Solutions Act on the carbon sequestration, soil sequestration front, any other things that are out there. We could probably spend an hour on each of these individually, <laughs> but maybe, uh, you know, and we've, we've done plenty of NBCA sessions that are an hour plus on many of these, but let's go over some of these at a high level, talk about their implications for climate change innovation, and then also just touch on what's next for them in the legislative process. And just know that we're recording this at the beginning of September 2021. So depending on when this comes out, you may need to fast forward slightly through here, but I think it's relevant context setting regardless. For sure. Let me say, perhaps for the first time in history, climate is facing a potentially serendipitous moment. We talked about the record levels of capital coming in from the private sector, both from venture capital, private equity, et cetera. And that's coming at a time when the Senate which is generally the harder body to get things through, has already passed two proposals with tens of billions of dollars of climate finance in it. And that's the Endless Frontier Act, and that's the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework, as well as the Growing Climate Solutions Act, which is a bit of a separate model. So maybe we'll start focusing on these first. On Endless Frontier, you have a bill that's a $100 billion five-year program to facilitate more basic research and technology commercialization and company scale-up across a range of 10 different technology areas, one of them being climate. And so we tend to think if those programs are implemented effectively, there will be a lot of resources coming to bear for early-stage startups. I think there'll be a lot more opportunities for technology to spin out both government and university labs because of this, et cetera. So I think you can really help the demand side of the technology equation here if those work. The bipartisan infrastructure framework is very interesting because you had a number of Republicans voting for this. And so it passed with a pretty robust margin, certainly in terms of climate spending, the most robust margin I think I have seen. And that has programs across all different elements of climate and even non-climate technology, things, cybersecurity, but also transportation, mobility, smart city, 
energy sources and storage, grid technology, materials for climate technology, manufacturing, and water technology, carbon capture, hydrogen, et cetera. And the, those programs are generally built in three different ways. One is grant programs to state, local governments, utilities, or other sort of public service, private entities, to give them money to go procure technology. Say, listen, you know, you need a bunch of money to clean up your water systems. Here's a billion dollars to distribute out to state and local governments and utilities to procure those technologies. Same thing on sources, storage. So that's sort of one way that the programs work. So from a founder perspective, like what that will mean for founders is assuming it passes in the, the house that over the coming few years, there will presumably be more money at the local level to work with state and local governments for pilots and contracts that you may want to pursue. Is that correct? Contracts, demonstration projects, just pure grants as well, all types of those things, absolutely. And so, you know, this is where I go back to bigger and better because that means that in order for this to be successful, those procurement processes in the state and local governments, which have historically been somewhat hostile to innovative startups, we got to figure that out, right? They've got to buy the best technology. They can't just go to some rinky-dink government contractor who upcharges them on a mediocre piece of software and calls it a day. They got to get the real technology in there. I see that every day where startups are competing for an RFP and instead of winning the RFP with their scaled out platform solution, they lose to a local dev shop that's building custom software for regional government. Yeah, I I hear you. Like that's got to change. Love the local dev shops that are doing great work, but we need scaled solutions to solve these problems. That's right. And the way that I've always said it is just let the best technology win, right? Just make sure that your processes are letting the best technology come to the fore on this. Because if we do what we have done traditionally in these processes, we're not going to be putting our best foot forward with what is our best chance to address the climate crisis. That's one thing to look at. Another part is actually direct grants from government agencies for various things, including but not limited to research, demonstration projects, manufacturing, and other types of deployment. And so there are going to be opportunities at the federal agency level as well that are seeking to incorporate the technology that startups are are developing into various processes across the government. So it's climate. It's also infrastructure related. As I'm sure you've said a million times, right, all this stuff is interconnected, right? Infrastructure, agriculture, all these different elements of the economy. And I think they get that, right? And that's one of the really exciting things to see about how these bills are being written is their response is to try to incorporate those technologies into those areas and modernize our systems. And then the third thing that the, that the bill does is just try to get the government agencies smarter in technology. And so they develop these various boards, new offices, et cetera, that are meant to create expertise in certain technological areas, being like water technology or cyber or things like that, so that other agencies in government can have someone to go to to help walk them through it. I think we also have an opportunity there as well, which is to try to help them understand how this unique ecosystem works and point out, hey, this is how you can you know, perhaps run your processes to make sure that the best technology does win out. Great. Do you want to hit on what's going on with the reconciliation package and what you expect to, to see happen there? Yeah, for sure. So, so the reconciliation package is, is shaping up to be one of the biggest bills I've, I've ever seen. We haven't seen the language yet, unlike the bipartisan framework and endless frontier that we've been engaged on. But what we hear is coming in there is some large scale things, you know, like a clean electricity program to try to create a series of incentives and disincentives for utilities to purchase more clean energy. I think you're going to see a lot of research programs, grant programs. I think you're going to see things on the very much the demand side, energy efficiency, trying to get more residential solar, electric vehicle charging stations, building off of what you see in the bipartisan 
us a bill there. And so I think your biggest number on climate is going to probably come in the reconciliation package. It's going to be building off of a lot of the innovation stuff you see in the other two. I think it comes back to the same thing, right, which is that we need to figure out how can we make sure that these procurement processes and the government regulatory processes, right? You know, how do you get things through? We've obviously heard all the horror stories about what happens in the Small Business Innovation Research Program. That's supposed to give grants to small business to help them scale. Those get captured by things like cyber mills or, or other entities that don't actually scale those programs. So how can we get that fixed or how can we give innovative startups the best chance to get through those processes? to access these programs if the resources are truly going to be there, because I actually think it's going to be fundamental to whether or not this process is successful ultimately. That's great. And you mentioned cyber mills a couple of times. I think just for clarity for listeners, those are basically small business government contract organizations that basically their entire business model is chasing RFPs as opposed to building out a software platform. Is that how you would sort of describe that? That's right. And these are entities that are taking SBAR grant after SBAR grant with no intention of actually scaling up a company. And so they basically survive off the grants that are otherwise supposed to be used to actually build real companies, create those jobs and, and get those technologies integrated in society. Because if you just keep funding research, it becomes a tree in the forest thing, right? It's great that you're funding research, but nobody's here in the tree fall. And then just procedurally on the reconciliation package, because of Senate rules, right, it's filibuster proof. So it doesn't need to surpass the 60 vote majority. It's already been sort of signed off on by the 50 Democrats in the Senate, which allows them to now proceed into details about it. Does it also need to go through the House or not? Like, what's the process there? So the House was able to pass their budget resolution. So the actual bill will have to go through both chambers, right? So it it was sort of a two-part process. One, you had to pass a budget resolution that said, hey, if you draft a bill that looks like this, then you don't have to worry about the filibuster in the Senate. That part's been done. Now we're moving into the actual text stage, right? The ground rules have been set. Now we're looking at the actual text. And the House is likely to move first. Obviously, you know, we're, we're talking here right before Labor Day. We're looking at a markup in the House Ways and Means Committee starting the week after Labor Day. So depending when folks listen to this, we may be very happy about what we've seen there or we may not. But, you know, that's something we can opine on at a later date. Once it goes to the House Ways and Means Committee process, then it goes to the House floor, gets worked on further there. The Senate then does their own thing. They either go through the Senate Finance Committee process as well, or they go straight to the floor. And then there's other committees that are going to weigh in too, right? The Energy and Commerce Committee, for instance, the Appropriations Committee, all those sorts of things. That's all going to get packaged up, passed through. Each chamber and then conference could try to find a final product that can, A, get 218 votes in the House, B, get 50 votes in the Senate, and C, get the president's signature. The big challenge we see right now is this big divide between the progressives and the moderates. Because that $3.5 trillion number that they pass a budget resolution on, the moderates view that as a top line, and they don't want to actually get to 3.5. They said, listen, we'll do this for purposes of getting there. But when we actually write the text, we're probably closer to, you know, for argument's sake, $2 trillion. And I think the progressives are saying, no, we actually meant 3.5 or nothing. And so they have to figure out where are they going to land on that? You know, how much are they going to spend? Then how much are they going to offset, you know, how many revenue raisers or other spending cuts, likely mostly revenue raisers, are they going to include to make it as deficit neutral as possible? And then they can get into the actual substance of the program, right? Okay, so you got the two trillion. How do you spend all that, right? We know that healthcare is going to be a prominent part of this education, workforce development is going to be significant. And some of that workforce development stuff, by the way, could be super helpful for some of our climate companies, right? 
So we'll be watching that stuff closely as well. I've seen a couple startups just recently in the career transition and jobs development space around moving people into climate jobs, you know, whether it's solar contract installers or wind turbine maintenance or what have you. I appreciate you bringing that up because I think it's a perfect example of those are folks that should start talking together now and thinking about, hey, I may be your rival in terms of the product I'm selling or this or that, but together we can offer a unified front to government and we can make sure that these rules are written in, in a more advantageous way or a more open manner once we get into that regulatory process. And, you know, this is a lot of what, Cody, what you and I are going to be doing in the Climate Sustainability Group as we kind of comb through all this. But certainly a perfect example of, hey, you might want to start chatting now because there's going to be a big chunk on this. You've reiterated that with me a few times, which is, yes, we want to have a presence while things are actually going through the congressional side of legislation. But in many cases, the details around how these programs get implemented actually happen at the federal agency level with Department of Energy, Department of Ag, et cetera. And so oftentimes it's actually after things pass Congress that they then move into a place where VCs, startups, et cetera, can have more direct influence in implementation level details. Do you want to explain a little bit more about that? and what that process looks like? Absolutely. And I would say that's actually more the case with these pieces of legislation now because of the manner in which they're being written and passed, which is to say, you know, very tight, high-level negotiation, very politically sensitive. So the language doesn't get out until right before they're going to vote on it, meaning that what they're trying to do is to say, let's draw these top-line parameters and let's let the regulators have a lot of flexibility to actually design these programs. And so that's always the case generally is that you, you kind of do your statutory thing and then you take that momentum into the regulatory process and you have those conversations, you meet with regulators, you write letters, et cetera. But sometimes the statute can be more prescriptive, the statute that Congress passes. These so far have been somewhat less prescriptive. I count both Endless Frontier and the bipartisan bill having gone through both in that category, where there's sort of top line issues and maybe a few parameters in there, but a lot of it is left to the regulators figure. I mean, we talked about the Grown Climate Solutions Act as a perfect example, right? 90% plus of this is actually going to be written by the regulators. And I expect that to be similar in the partisan reconciliation package as well. You know, a lot of what we'll do is we just figure out which programs do we care about the most so we know where to put our political capital and our time and resources. And then Focus on those, figure out what it is they're trying to accomplish. This is where we can be the interlocutors, right? Okay, this is what government wanted to do. What do you all think about this? And then how do we put together our list of issues on this package? From there, we do you know some sort of an official comment letter that has these views. We give to the regulators. A lot of times we do a follow-up meeting with them as well, where we kind of walk through the issues. They'll ask for data or things like that that we can provide back to them. And that's sort of the way that we have these conversations to try to ensure that our voice is being heard. Because one thing, going back to a former question you had on, um, what has changed. I think people are really interested in startups. And I do think that they want to see their participation across a range of these programs. They're just not sure how to do it yet. And so that's a lot of what we want to try to be as helpful as we possibly can. In. Yeah, it's a lot easier to call a government relations person at a Fortune 500 company and get their feedback than it is to triangulate feedback from 70 different startups that are innovating in the space, right? None of who have a cohesive message because they haven't gotten together to create that unified document, right? So one person might have five issues, another person might have a separate seven issues. What we can do with that convening power is say, let's get the top line issues together, right, that you all can use. So you know, if you have those 70 startups, we can write a letter that has the top line issues. And then those 70 startups can echo those top line issues in addition to their own unique ones that they want to raise. That is how industries are best organized in these processes. 
Before we move off of the current set of legislation that's being discussed, I want to make sure we at least hit on two of the more prominent ones. We've talked about them, but two of the more prominent ones in the carbon sequestration space, which is in particular the Growing Climate Solutions Act in the soil sequestration and ag side of things, and then 45Q, which is I think historically been more of an oil and gas related piece of legislation, but there's obviously a push to broaden it out from there. Maybe hit on each of those and describe what they are and kind of where you expect them to play out in the landscape because they're not part of all these other packages that are in the news a lot right now. Yeah, Growing Climate Solutions is going to move on its own. I could see 45Q, you could see that in the partisan package, right? They are thinking about doing a fair amount of tax policy in there. You know, I think it's going to have a pretty significant climate tax title. Growing Climate Solutions, as you know, is a way to try to bring some framework to carbon sequestration for agriculture. And again, it's a very broad framework. And basically what it says is, hey, Department of Agriculture, we want you to create a framework for how to pay farmers for carbon sequestration efforts. How you do that, the details are mostly up to you. But once we pass this, we, you know, we'll give you that authority and, and that impetus to do so. And so our view on that one is hopefully we see that pass at some point. That could not make it past reconciliation in the Senate because in order to pass reconciliation in the Senate, you have to have some sort of direct budgetary impact, right? So if you cut taxes or increase spending or vice versa, that has a direct budgetary impact. But just a regulatory policy can't make it through on its own. So it'll have to pass on its own. And it's this crazy thing where you, you got to give Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer a great deal of credit in terms of what he's been able to accomplish because the Senate is usually the place where bills go to die, right? That's a traditional function of the institution. And yet you've seen Senator Schumer be able to pass endless frontier, bipartisan infrastructure framework, and growing climate solutions, all on pretty significant bipartisan votes. Growing climate solutions, very significant bipartisan vote, and all are now actually stacked up at the door of the House of Representatives which is, you know, really is sort of upside down world for me. So arguing that that does get through, then I think we have a very robust regulatory process to go talk to Department of Agriculture about, about how to implement that. And so on the 45Q side, you're absolutely right. Everything we've heard is that it's generally only used for enhanced oil recovery. Again, not bigger. You Just because you spend more money in 45Q doesn't mean you're getting the better climate outcomes. There's a couple issues with that. One is that it's not direct pay, so startups can't take advantage of it until they're profitable or they get to a size where at least their tax financing deals are worthwhile. But perhaps more importantly is that they have a minimum scale requirement 45Q. That There's a couple of different pieces to it, but broadly speaking, you have to be able to sequester about 25,000 tons of carbon per year. And that just completely ignores the basic fundamentals of how technology scales, right? And I think it's a really unfortunate outcome. And so instead of actually generating or supporting a lot more dynamic technology being used, experimented with, and scaled, it's only giving benefits to basically enhance oil recovery. So if we can get those two issues fixed, I feel better about the direct pay mechanism than the minimum scale requirements right now. But if we can get those two issues fixed, I think that will bring a significant uh, potential resource to bear on the innovative pace of carbon capture technology. It's a big if though, right? We haven't seen the language at this point yet on how the House is thinking about their climate tax provisions, but we'll see that shortly. We'll kind of get our first indication of what we're looking at. I mean, from where I sit, I just see so much innovation happening in the carbon capture space right now, whether it's in director capture, whether it's in nature-based solutions for capture and storage. And none of these startups are yet capturing at any significant scale, but they're sitting on incredibly promising technology that can be developed. So hopefully we can push and get the government to provide some benefit to those startups that are trying to innovate in that world. Because I think all the numbers that we all see 
show that we obviously need to decarbonize as rapidly as possible, but it's not going to be enough. We're going to need to innovate in carbon capture, not just as a way to offset oil and gas, but as a way to actually just remove the excess CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. That's my soapbox. <laughs> oh, no, no, all good. I, I just nodded along with you because you're 100% right. I mean, you got to be realistic about where we are, right? And I think ignoring carbon capture is more of a head in the sand kind of strategy, right? I get that we have to have a fundamental shift in the economy. We got to get there. But the fact is, is that we already have major consequences baked in. And if we ignore carbon capture, then those consequences are even more severe before we can turn the ship around, even in an ideal set of circumstances. The one positive thing I would say is there are actually several provisions in the bipartisan package impacting carbon capture as well, including a procurement program for products made from captured carbon, as well as money for demonstration projects and some other things. I got one more question for you, which is in addition to my work at Techstars, I'm also co founder of a climate action political advocacy group called Climate Changemakers. And so I'm really wired to think about how we can all get involved in the political process. We've hit on that a little bit, but I guess just at a broad level for listeners here, what do you recommend people do to get involved in the process? Whether you're a startup, whether you're a VC, whether you're just someone who's interested in climate tech and where the world is going, what are the things we can each do to be more active and help shape the future that we all want to see? That's a great question. And really, at the end of the day, organization coordination is what drives successful outcomes in public policy. It's a really messy process. There's a lot of ins and outs, a lot of strange things that happens in it. But the bottom line fundamentals of how our democracy works is that as an industry, as an interest group, you know, whatever it is, whether you're economic, whether you're social, organization coordination is fundamental to your ability to impact the outcomes. And so especially from the startup perspective where you have incumbents that are talking about this stuff and through a whole different lens, you have got to figure out a way to organize and coordinate your voice so that they're hearing you time and again. And right. So you go back to the 70 startups. So that when those 70 startups write a letter, they're all saying the exact same things. And, and, and so when the regulators get that, they say, oh, OK, got it. We need direct pay or we need X, Y and Z. So. And there really hasn't been a lot of that coordination on the startup side. I think it's somewhere that we really do want to try to be helpful and build out our capabilities working with you through the Climate Sustainability Group. So if folks can get to know each other in this space and come to us and say, hey, listen, like we're here for you when this is going, that would really be helpful. We think we can help that organization and coordination perspective because it's absolutely necessary. It's not that policymakers or procurement officials are intrinsically opposed to startups. It's just that they have their own world, right? They kind of function within their blinders and it's up to us to change those dynamics. And we can only do that again through organization and coordination. And I'll just add one last thing to that. Sometimes people say, oh, we'll make a bunch of calls to policymakers across the country. Your voice is most impactful locally first. Right. So your U.S. senator, your United States congressman, all the way down to your mayor and city council, where you live is the most important place where you can use your voice. I joke, you know, someone from San Francisco calling a policymaker in Iowa, the person answers the phones, they're not even going to take that message down. Right. You got to function within where you can hold your most impact. And you've got to trust that if you have good organization coordination, then those folks in other states are doing the same thing. And that's how you maximize your outcome. I love both those points. On the organizational front, getting people together. I mean, one of the things that's been really inspiring to me over the last couple of years is just the growth of all these online communities around climate tech. And so I would say if you're listening to this and you're a member of one of the one of these big communities that's formed on Slack or wherever, that's a great place to try to get people organized and speaking out of the same voice. And, you know, in terms of asserting local influence, like just learning how to 
call your congressperson or attend a town hall or write a letter to the editor in your local newspaper. Like those are all really impactful things that make a difference. I can only imagine, right, as a former staffer, if I got an email from 10 climate tech companies in my boss's state saying, hey, we love a 30-minute meeting to discuss this, right? Now, you got to have what you got to know what you want to discuss, which is why you need to have the organization. But that really matters. That matters a lot more than one company, right? It's the power of organization and coordination that really allows you to speak with a much more powerful voice and be much more impactful. So totally with everything you said there. Awesome, Justin. One last question for you and something I ask every guest, which is, What's one piece of advice you have for entrepreneurs embarking on a climate-focused endeavor? I guess I would say maybe more than advice would be a plea. Um, Please do it. We need it. At the end of the day, technology is fundamental to addressing this crisis. There's a lot of other things we're going to have to do, no doubt. But if we don't accelerate the technology curve, we're never going to get to where we need to get to. So A, please do it. B, knowing how difficult it is know that there are also resources out there. People believe in what you're trying to do. It may be really confusing, complex, but there are folks out there that want to try to be helpful. And whatever we can do to support your mission, please just let us know. And God bless and and good luck. Justin, thank you so much. Thanks for all the work you're doing. It's making a difference. I can attest to it directly. The amount of access that you all have to key leaders on the Hill, key leaders that are running different federal agencies and whatnot, and putting the word into them around how startups, entrepreneurs, innovators are wanting to see change happen is really meaningful. Thanks for that. And thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. Really appreciate all the work you do in there. It's been a real joy to work with you on this. Awesome. I look forward to a lot more to come. Thanks for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the discussions. You can check out the episode notes for more info about our guests and resources we mentioned. See you on the next episode of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast. 